Sounds great. All right, let's get your um, audio levels. Go ahead and speak for just a second. Is this good enough? Can you hear me? Perfect. All right, great. All right, let's get going. Drew? All right, everybody, welcome back. This is episode number 21 of the Recovery Lab podcast series. I'm Drew Hassan. I'm Daniel Anderson. And we are joined today, thank you so much, Dr. Thompson. How are you, sir? Thank you for having me. I appreciate you having me on the show. Well, look, I appreciate you taking the time to do this. Absolutely. Uh, I feel like there's an imbalance here. I'm wearing a baseball cap, and you've got a coat and tie on. <laughs> but uh, we'll just say that uh, and we're just being a little more relaxed in studio. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> absolutely. I didn't know what the dress code was, so I just figured I'd dress to wear a suit. It's not, not common for me either. So No, you're good. You're good. We appreciate you. Uh, absolutely. Even absolutely. All right, you want to start with the announcements? Well, all right, so the general introductory spiel for everybody listening is the same Please comment. Please be involved. Uh, the more interconnect, the more layers of interconnectivity that we can grow and develop, either via your comment or sharing the video, the better the recovery community is at large. Uh, if you've got constructive criticism, please comment with it. The general examples that I give are that you can get free Narcan at the Pines in Columbus. That's Columbus, Mississippi. Uh, or uh, Mr. Moore's Bike Shop in Hattiesburg. There are a host of other places that also have it that you can find uh, by searching End It For Good on Facebook, uh, Angela Mallet and Christina Dent's place, their uh, entity, their organization. They've uh, laid out a pretty impressive uh, network of mm-hmm. Narcan distribution centers, and I think it's all, they're all free. I don't think you have to pay for any of it. Uh, in that same vein, if you have any other information that might be beneficial for any member of the recovery community, please please post it. I mean, the more everybody is involved, the better we will all be. That's right. Um, also, we need your financial support. We appreciate it. People have made donations, and we certainly appreciate that. We've got all this nice equipment that we need to pay for. Uh, we also have uh, some hoodies, mm-hmm. very attractive hoodies that you can buy. And if you go to recoverylabllc.com, you can order the hoodies, see pictures of Daniel and me, because I know that's what everybody wants to look at. <laughs> but more importantly, you can see pictures of people wearing the hoodies. We call it our mugshot page. It's yeah. pretty cool, really. That's great. Also, let's let's not forget, we now have Patreon. Patreon, yes, join, support us. Yep. Five dollars a month, a thousand dollars a month, whichever <laughs> one, whichever one you want to pay. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, it's it's uh it's great. It's it's um, you know, if if you do subscribe to that, you will have access to um, premier content, premier content that you won't have access to if you're not a member of the Patreon. So, I had no idea what Patreon was until we were at Christmas, and my brother and brother-in-law were like, "Hey, why don't you have Patreon?" And I said, I don't know what Patreon is. I'd heard of it. I'd never really had. Yeah. Evidently, the YouTubers, that's, I mean, that's that's what they all do. And I'd never heard of it. So that lets you know what I know about YouTube. But, all right. Uh, anything else that you that we needed to mention uh, before we I, jump right in? Look, all right, Daniel drafted some bang up questions. So just get started. Yeah. Let's, let's jump right in. Um, all right. So I guess let's start with, uh, <clears throat> with uh, number two. Um, which is kind of a, a, a broad introduction into 
where you are and why you are where you are right now. So what made you want to go into the pain management side of, of medicine? What was it that, that really lit a fire underneath you that said, Hey, I can do anything that I want, but I want to focus on pain and helping people deal with pain. What, what got you started with that? So, I mean, the, the short answer to that was just personal experience. You know, I think it, when you've gone through something, you can relate to it. It doesn't have to be the case with everything, but it definitely was a, a factor for me. So um, I was active my whole life, you know, growing up, I played soccer and, you know, in med school to kind of manage stress, I'd play soccer on the weekends. So one day I was playing a game, I got hurt, um, you know, didn't think of it as anything big, um, ended up being kind of a neck injury that stayed around for a long time. Um, went to my primary care doctor, went to physical therapy, still kind of just kept hurting and hurting. Um, you know, it was really frustrated because as a, as a musculoskeletal type injury, it was kind of hard to find anything that helped. I wasn't big on taking medication, still I'm not really big on taking medication. Uh, so the therapy did help, you know, eventually it just took a while, you know, it was frustrating initially when I felt like it wasn't working right away to kind of want to give up on it. And so I wondered, you know, what can uh, anybody do to help speed this process up, you know, because, you know, I didn't really have experience with that or enough knowledge at that point in time. And um, so fast forward a couple of years later, I got into uh, physical medicine and rehabilitation, which is my primary specialty. And I found out that, you know, it kind of developed after World War II, treating people who had like brain injuries and traumatic brain injuries and, um, you know, also strokes and, right. you know, amputees and people of that nature and musculoskeletal <laughs> injuries kind of fell into that. So I, I naturally gravitated to that, you know, kind of being a uh, very active guy. And then, uh, you know, from there, pain management was a nice derivative. Uh, I originally wanted to be kind of a surgeon. And so I didn't love the lifestyle, uh, you know, having to work all the time. So it was a nice right. work-life balance in pain and then being able to kind of be more procedural and help uh, people without, you know, necessarily getting on, on medications, which was my own personal philosophy of, you know, being able to help and getting injections to speed that healing process up. So right. that's where I got there. Okay, great, great. Um, so we, 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 we want to talk um, a little bit about um, treatment and uh, helping people to get into treatment and find the treatment they need. Um, so what, what are the barriers that you have found throughout your, um, your uh, line of work that um, has kept people from getting the treatment that they need? Specifically, I'm speaking more about opioids and and things like that but with just in general is there anything that that you're like man i wish this wasn't like this so the people that need treatment would be able to gain access to the treatment absolutely you know i think you know there's a big barrier there's a big gap you know there's organizations out there that you know we've spoken about like recovery for america you know that talk about that gap and bridging the gap that are you know really important um, you know, unfortunately, you know, depending on what you read up to 90% of the people out there who are candidates for treatment are not getting treatment. I think that is a, a difficult area to, to handle because a lot of it is a lack of knowledge. Um, you know, people don't understand the options that exist. Uh, you know, it's not something that's very public, even in the realm of, you know, medicine, a lot of physicians are not aware of all the treatment options that exist and how to, you know, best serve their patients. Uh, I think also the general public doesn't know about it. And then finally, even when people do know about treatment, um, there's a lack of money, lack of resources for it. You know, a lot of patients that we serve are not insured. Um, you know, here in Texas, one in four, one in one in three, one in four people are uninsured. You know, so that's a big factor. Uh, you know, the other factor is that with that, even with insurance, the cost can be pretty great depending on the 
the plan, the deductible, uh, Absolutely. The, there, the cost of medication. Just because you have insurance does not mean that you are going to have access to quality treatment. Absolutely. You know, and then also what kind of insurance you, you have, you know, certain insurance plans are not accepted widely by physicians. Uh, you know, and that has to do with a lot of times the reimbursement there, but you know, it makes it difficult for uh, patients to find care sometimes in quality care and also to be treated, you know, not like a, a number, but to be treated like an individual, which I think is really key in recovery process and being able to maintain that recovery process. Um, so I think cost is a big, fa a big factor, you know, and then I think the last factor is judgment. You know, there's a lot of judgment that comes into it with society, with families, uh, with organizations. Uh, sometimes people saying, you know, this type of treatment is not acceptable, you know, in maintaining sobriety or maintaining recovery. And so uh, judgment, you know, in society and even in, within the recovery community itself, I think impedes recovery for a lot of people. You you certainly sound like the 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 unicorn doctor. <laughs> I mean, with this this awareness of the impact that pharmaceuticals have on uh, people with addiction problems. I mean, I know that a lot of my addiction was spurred on by doctor manipulation. Yeah, absolutely. and it was. I mean, I don't know how much manipulation it was. I mean, they were more than happy to write the prescriptions for me. So, is mm -hmm. there has there been? I mean, you seem like a pretty young guy. Has there been a general pivoting away from uh, utilizing pharmaceuticals as a first line of defense to pain mitigation? Yeah. So, I mean, I'm a younger guy, you know, I came out of training in 2015, so I've been out for seven, eight years now. And, you know, I think that I, I benefited from coming behind some of the guys who didn't get that training, who didn't have that experience. You know, I think as a field, we all try to do what's right for patients and we're all a product of what we learned and what we, you know, trained on. Uh, and I think that a lot of the time that you have people coming in who are told, you know, opiates are not dangerous. There was a time in the nineties and the early oh, yeah. where people said, you know, there's no such thing as too many opiates. And so a lot of physicians who came out who were older than me, that uh, came from that background of feeling like this is something that's okay. Uh, it's okay to have, uh, you know, opiates. It's okay to have, uh, you know, an unlimited amount. And they're not know, addictive they're not addictive. They're not, no, they're not causing any harm. And so, right. you know, people took that and, you know, and if you didn't continue to read up or, you know, change your, your philosophy, because a lot of times things are, are different, you know, and things change, um, that's the nature of science. Uh, and we learn over time that these things don't work. So for me coming in, I knew, you know, that these things were not helpful long-term opiates were started out. We used them for cancer pain. So, you know, it was used for people who were, you know, sometimes had shorter periods of life or, you know, had a disease process that was really tough. And, you know, the idea that either they were going to transition, you know, or that they were going to be healed, and then we could wean the opiates was a uh, legitimate one, but then it expanded out to, you know, other patient populations, you know, chronic right. pain being one of them. And, you know, it was used very liberally in all areas of medicine, and including dentistry. And so, you know, with that liberal uh, view on giving opiates out to everybody, including young kids, uh, you know, it really set people up for this. And we know that roughly 10% of our country is affected by this. And that's what the statistics bear out that, you know, roughly 300 million people in the United States and about 30 million are, you know, uh, affected by this. And so right. that's a big deal. Absolutely. What is the... No, go ahead. Go ahead. How does, how do the treatment plans laid out by Dr. Thompson uh, differ from a more traditional opiate-based, let's just let's just numb it. I mean, how, how do you get people, I mean, I've looked at your website and so I know that you have a uh, you know, myriad 
treatment options, but what are the things y'all go to first? Well, from the pain management standpoint, you know, I think there's four big categories of things that we can do for people. Uh, you know, I'm a big believer in physical therapy, um, you know, that and that's a big umbrella. So I would say things like, you know, uh, massage therapy, actual physical therapy, uh, chiropractic therapy is, is a good place to start, you know, being more active is going to help with pain, you know, but there are times when the pain is so severe that you can't, can't do that. Right. Um, I'm very big on interventions, you know, uh, kind of, I'm a find the cause type of guy. So, you know, let's look, let's get imaging, let's figure out what's causing you to hurt. Uh, let's work with, you know, our injections, you know, pain has evolved a lot, even in the last seven, eight years where there's more interventions that allow us to fix the pain rather than just mask it. Right. Um, and I think that's, that's helped. And also working with my, my surgical colleagues, you know, I have many surgical colleagues who are great uh, and they've even gotten more minimally invasive with what they can do. And that's been helpful. Uh, then the last part of, you know, medications is a, is a tool, but I think, you know, responsible escalation, not necessarily just starting with an opiate, looking at other classes of medicines. Um, I personally hate the idea of calling opiates pain medication. They're a type of pain medication, but there's other kinds of medicines right. out there that can help. Uh, and then I think the last part of it is, you know, um, more advanced interventions. And so those more advanced interventions are going to be things like, you know, stimulators, pain, like a TENS unit, TENS unit, well, like a TENS unit that's implanted. Okay. These are things that are kind of like more durable. I feel like in terms of maintaining treatment, uh, putting the, the treatment in the hands of the doctor. So the patient is not tasked with trying to figure out how much pills they should take right. uh, and helping to prevent issues like substance use disorder, uh, because we're not just giving a, a, a patient a bottle of pills, you know, 180, 240 pills and saying, well, good luck. I mean, I don't think that's necessarily responsible. So, right. you know, the newer therapies are allowing us to take a more control and being able to walk the patient through what they need to do to maintain, you know, their pain level uh, at a, a reasonable place and not have escalation of dose. Brilliant. Brilliant. All right. Um, so, there's something that um, Drew and I probably, I know that I did for a fact, but um, what they call drug seeking, I'm sure you're familiar with it. Um, you know, shopping for doctors to get whatever you want. And, and I imagine there is training for medical professionals to be able to not only identify these these actions and these, you know, things that people do, but but also just deep down in your heart, you have to know. So when a patient approaches you uh, and you have a feeling that they are drug seeking, uh, how do you handle that situation? What do you do and and, and what do you do to mitigate the, the risk of, of you know, uh, enabling this person's addiction from growing? Well, you know, I think drug seeking, you have to be careful to label a patient as drug seeking. You know, I want to make sure that I exclude every other possibility before we go to that point. Uh, you know, I think that, you know, as a pain doctor, you know, I want to make sure that we're not missing something. So, you know, we make sure we rule out all the organic causes first. Uh, and then afterwards, we kind of try to understand the factors, both physical and psychological that are uh, potentially causing that to happen. Is this financial stress? Is this emotional stress? What other factors are, are potentially causing the patient to turn to opiates as a, as a coping mechanism? You know, similar to alcohol, sometimes people will turn to substances as a um, method of coping with, you know, other types of pain that may not be purely physical. Sure. Uh, there's a numbing effect, a way to kind of check out. But once we find out a patient is, you know, drug seeking, I think we talk to them about options. I mean, I'm big on setting out a menu for patients in terms of what we can do for them. And, you know, in the, the recovery community, there's a lot of things out there that can be helpful. And there's not a one, uh, one size that fits everybody. Everybody has to have a different kind of treatment plan. 
you know, for some people that's, you know, going to inpatient rehab, some people it's outpatient, some people it's medication assisted treatment. So I think it's looking at that patient and seeing what their individual needs are, you know, family support, financial status, and then figuring out a plan that's going to work well for that particular individual. Look, I think you hit on some stuff that I, I personally have found in my own life to be of value. It played a plays a part. I've noticed in my own behavior patterns how when I'm more stressed, when I'm fretting about something, my back hurts more. Mm-hmm. And I realize that this is like it, it's almost like, uh, you know, this self-protection measure. You know, I can divert my attention away from the thing that is the actual life stressor and I can be, you know, okay, well, I, I don't accomplish as much because my back hurts and everything like that. And I think that's really, uh, I mean, I know it is common for people in recovery to deal with these. Um, I mean, I don't know if I would call it psychosomatic pain, but it's something approaching that. Yeah. How do you deal with people that like, I, I think that's great. You're onto something about, I want to encourage exercise. I want to encourage physical therapy because you all know that you, if you can get that dopamine released in a healthy way by the exercise, you're going to, you know, be in your, a much better your worldview is going to be improved. Right. You're going to be less stressful and thus maybe some of those injuries can be, or some of that pain can be mitigated. Right. I agree. I mean, I think the big thing is, you know, getting people back to what they want to do. You know, I think there's an aspect of pain that is emotional. We know this, um, you know, the thalamus is kind of a relay center in the brain where we process pain. We think about, you know, where it is, you know, like you have pain in a certain area of your body. And then there's an emotional component that, you know, because you have this pain, you have sin, uh, suffered this sense of loss or there's a sense of distress or a sense of, you know, I can't do something that is very important to me. Uh, so, you know, um, there's also, you talked about somatic pain. There can be somatization. We see it in, in children, you know, where they have like a belly ache sometimes because they're unable to describe the pain they have and it's, there's nothing wrong, but there's something that's upsetting them. Uh, as we get older, sometimes we were able to evolve past that, but there's elements of that somatization that can happen even in older, older folks, you know, depending on coping mechanisms that have evolved over time and levels of trauma that have occurred in the past. And so, you know, I think the big thing uh, for us is that we want to look at the patient and understand those factors, you know, psychological, familial, uh, and financial that may be affecting pain in a way that's not just physical. Um, a lot of times people are put on opiates because a patient comes in and says, well, my pain's a 10 out of 10. We all know that, you know, someone else's 10 is not going to be your 10. Right. And, you know, uh, unfortunately, we don't have an objective way to measure pain. Uh, you know, there are some things that we can look at as surrogates for it, but there's no, you know, pain you know, monitoring device that we can just say, this is what it's going to be. So for me, you know, with background in physical medicine and rehabilitation, I look at function, you know, I tell people, we don't have an organ that we work on. We work on function. That's our, that's our thing. We're not, you know, heart doctors. We're not lung doctors. We're function doctors. That's what we do. And so, you know, I ask the patient, what is it that you're not able to do because of your pain? That's what concerns me. So, you know, if you're not able to play with your kids, you're not able to go to work, you're not able to garden or whatever it is that, you know, gives you joy, uh, happiness. Um, I want to find out that thing and I want to get you back to that. And then whatever that level of pain is that you have, as long as it's a level that is, you know, enabling to you to continue to function, then I'm okay with that. You know, everyone is going to have pain. Pain is a normal experience. Everyone experiences this, you know, daily or every other, you know, it's, it's common. It's, it's a normal part of life. 
but it needs to be managed where it's not interfering with the activities that you enjoy or need to do. Makes sense. Makes sense. All right. Um, now, is there is there something that um, that you come across on a regular basis with your patients? Is there something that um, you wish just a just a baseline that you wish all of your um, patients understood prior to coming in and sitting down at your office? Is there something that people as a whole miss when they come to speak to you, or or not? And and what what um, what is something that you wish that everyone would know and everyone be on the same page when they come into your office and seeking help? So, you know, I really appreciate that question because I think it's about level setting or expectation setting for patients. I mean, a lot of times, you know, when I've gotten patients coming in, they've had pain for a long time. And, you know, we live in a society where things are immediate and this carries over recovery too, where people want to get, you know, clean or sober quickly. And this can be done Um, sobriety can be achieved quickly, but recovery is a lifelong process. And so it's kind of the same thing with pain, you know, it's a journey, uh, you know, so it's hard to come in with any patient and say, we can fix this immediately. Uh, This leads to problems because sometimes people think, well, I can just take a pill and this can fix it. And maybe it does for a moment, but the problem is there's, you know, you have to pay that debt at some point in the future. It can create future problems. So, you know, a lot of times that no is not to be, you know, uh, Unempathetic, not empathetic to them, but it's to let them know, hey, I'm caring about not just the short term, but also the long term. You know, there's a cost to putting you on this medicine. You know, if I put you on hydrocodone or oxycodone, what is the long term effects of this? What are we actually dealing with? You know, rather than saying we just need a quick fix, we need to think about what's life going to look for, like for you in five years and 10 years. If you're 35 years old and I'm putting you on a hydrocodone 10, 10, you know, five times a day, what does life look like for you at 55? You know, what are we doing? You know, there has got to be some plan that is looking at both the short and long term. So I think patients understanding that, you know, we're not here to fix it necessarily quickly. We're here to fix it well, you know, I right, think that's right. my um, and so we want to fix it well and we want it to be a durable response, you know, where the patient's getting that result and it's lasting, um, you know, whether it be pain or whether it be maintaining that recovery process, that's what I'm focused on. Great. I like that. Not here to fix it fast. I'm here to fix it well. Right, right. And oftentimes as, you know, and I can speak for for myself as being a, you know, a a drug addict and alcoholic in recovery, you know, I am always, always, well, when I was using and and oftentimes in sobriety, I want the easier, softer way. I want the quick fix. I want the, I want everything to be fixed now. So it's, that was very nice of me to, or of, of you to say that because that, that kind of reiterates the fact that, hey, you know, just because you saw there's an easy solution that will solve it quickly does not necessarily mean that it's going to be a, a solution that, that is, is, you know, going to last, um, and, and how important it is to, you know, come with it, come, come at your pain with a, um, you know, a reasonable expectation as to this is not something that we can always fix overnight and that we do need to be open-minded, um, when, when we discuss the, the different plans of, of, uh, of action to be able to treat that pain. So that's, that's, that's pretty great. Mm-hmm. Um, okay. So we're, we're talking about the problem. Um, and, and I want to do, I want to dive in just a little bit if we could, um, and in, into a little bit about Dr. Thompson, about what, what makes you tick. So it, what is the, the, what gives you the most joy in life 
in general, um, and, and also surrounding your profession. So what, what, when you wake up in the morning, what are you grateful for? What are you thinking? What makes you tick and what makes you, uh, be pleased to be on this earth? So, you know, I'm definitely grateful for, for God and for my family first and foremost. And, you know, I think I'm just grateful for the opportunity to be uh, a physician and have an opportunity to make a positive difference in our world. And so I know that sounds kind of cliche, but I think that no, for it's me, beautiful. health is, you know, health is your wealth. You know, people get focused on money, but if you don't have, you know, spiritual, mental, physical health, you know, it's hard to do anything else. And, you know, money comes, money goes. Um, but as long as you have health, especially in those areas and you've got family and you've got God, uh, anything is possible. Things can change, you know, quickly. And, you know, so I think that that's my focus. And so when I see my pain patients, I think about, you know, these are people who've lost their health, you know, whether it's emotional, you know, physical, even spiritual health, we have to think about how can we get them better? You know, how can we make them whole, you know, same thing in the recovery community. And once they have those things, once they have those tools, you know, there's no deficit that can't be overcome, you know, and come back on. And so I think we just have to focus on that. So, uh, the functional aspect for me is really huge because, you know, when, you know, everyone's been sick, everybody can relate to that. And a lot of times people, you know, are very judgmental of pain patients and patients who have substance use disorder, uh, because they think just, you know, well, let's just push through. And it's like, well, you've been sick too. You've had the flu. You've had something where you couldn't push through. You couldn't just willpower you're through it. And then it's not something that people are choosing. Nobody chooses to have to be sick. You know, it's just something right. that happens. Uh, and, you know, these disease states are no different than, you know, sometimes, you know, cancer, it's bad, but like, if you smoke for 60 years, that was a choice too, right? So it's, you know, it's those people get sympathy, and I'm not here to lambast them. But, you know, I'm saying that the people who are alcoholics or drug addicts, they didn't choose this any more than someone who was smoking for 60 years chose to have lung cancer, you know, right? So I think that we have to understand that. And we have to understand there's genetic factors you know, for example, hypertension, everyone probably knows someone with hypertension, but, you know, there are genetic factors that, that make that up and there are, you know, environmental factors. And so that 40 to 60% is genetic factors. And so that holds true for substance use disorder. So a lot of times people who have substance use disorder, maybe it's opiates, but they had a, a grandfather or a mother or a brother who had alcoholism. And so there's, you know, there's genetic factors that predispose them to that having a first degree relative with that. And that's a lot of us, you know, I have it in my own family. So, you know, I think that looking at that with a degree of compassion, uh, it changes things for people, you know, in terms of how they, how they view this and how they want to move. Um, so for me, I'm, I'm grateful for the opportunity to be able to make that difference, to create a different narrative for people. Uh, we had a hundred thousand deaths in the U S last year from opiates. Right. And so it's like, that's our future. Most of those people, you know, are younger than me and I'm not that old of a guy. So, you know, that to me, I feel like I'm, you know, making a difference. I feel like uh, that's making our world a better place. We're, we're helping not just the individual, but we're helping, you know, the whole family around them. So, you know, that's, you know, three, four, five or more lives that we're touching with each person we help. So that's huge. And that, what's the impact going to be on the future? Well, God only knows. So that would, is what makes me get out of bed every day, you know, to help people get back to their lives and, you know, make a difference that they've been, you know, destined to make. Absolutely. Beautiful. You mentioned when you treat your pain patients, what other kinds of patients do you treat? So I have substance use disorder patients uh, that I treat and I treat pain patients. Um, they're, you know, similar populations and different populations. Um, you know, that's kind of an area that's been interesting for me to kind of see and learn about. It's like a coin that has two sides. Uh, you know, if you think about pain, um, there are pain patients who come and they have legitimate pain and sometimes they'll be put on opiates legitimately. 
but will, for reasons I mentioned before, the genetic factors will sometimes be that 10% who end up getting hooked on pain medication. You know, and if you go back and look at things like even like Dr. Drew back in the day, a lot of people would come in and get hooked on, on pain pills, you right. know, and you'd see these reality TV shows where people are trying to, you know, get off opiates and they were prescribed it because they broke a bone or, you know, they had something happen and it was legitimately prescribed and, you know, there was unlimited refills. And the next thing you knew, you know, they, they didn't know how to get off, you know, and these, right. this is a story that everybody has heard from a friend or family member or somebody they know. And then, you know, it became a willpower thing where it said, you know, we'll just lock yourself up for three or four days and go through withdrawal and then you'll be fine. But the reality is there's an 80 to 90% failure rate there. So we know this is not just a willpower issue. This is a chemical issue in the brain. There's neurotransmitters that are involved in that. And so, you know, understanding that we know that we need to treat this as a medical condition. Uh, there's medications out there that can assist and help with that recovery process. Uh, and then in addition to counseling and other, you know, group and individual therapies and, and rehabs that exist out there. So I think it's not a, you know, it's this or that. Um, it's a comprehensive treatment uh, algorithm that you've got to think of for your patients. And pain's the same way. Like I mentioned before, it's not just medicines, it's doing injections, it's getting imaging, it's looking at therapy, it's bringing everything to bear. You're, you're not serving the patient well by just saying, here's hydrocodone and get out of my office. That's lazy medicine. You know, right. and it's easy, you know. A lot of patients are, you know, are treated that way because physicians think, well, if I keep giving you medicine, they'll come back every month. That's revenue. Uh, and it's not an argument because sometimes it can be difficult having those tough conversations. But at the end of the day, you know, it's worth having those conflicts, having those conversations to get to the other side of that, where you're going to have a, a better, more satisfied, happy patient with a better long-term outcome. Absolutely. Absolutely. What you, you mentioned other medications, and I imagine that Suboxone is on that list. What are your thoughts on Suboxone? Is it helpful in, in your practice? Do you like it? Do you not like it? What, tell us a little bit about that. So I like Suboxone a lot. You know, I know there's a lot of debate in the recovery community about medication assisted treatment and the role of Suboxone. And the most common thing I hear is I'm just giving up one substance for another right. substance. And, you know, I understand where people are coming from with that, but I think that you have to look at it like this. And this is what I tell people. We have a, our offices up on a higher floor of a building. And I said, you know, we, we kind of are on this floor, you know, that's a, a fact, me and the patient and your car is downstairs. And so we have two ways to get down there. One is to jump out the window. The other is to take the elevator, the stairs down. One is clearly faster than the other. If we jumped out the window, we'd get to the parking lot a lot faster, but it would be catastrophic. If we walk down these stairs, it's going to take longer. Um, and if we never go down, we're still safe. And so, you know, thinking about it, like from where we're at, once you've taken opiates for a long time, your body is wired for that. Right. And Suboxone, what it does is it hits the same receptors that opiates do. However, you don't have the dose escalation. And ultimately the biggest thing is life and death, which is that with Suboxone, you're safe. If you stay on heroin or stay on pain pills, the dose is going to continue to escalate and the risk of dying remains there. With Suboxone, the risk is markedly reduced, if not there at all, you know, depending on the dose that you're taking. And, you know, at that point, you're not seeing the dose escalation happen and you're seeing a patient who's healthy and happy and able to be a functioning citizen, you know, and I, I make that very similar to someone who's on insulin. If you're a diabetic, you know, you can lose weight, you can eat differently, you can do it the natural way. But the reality is most people are not able to. And so you stay on your insulin and you don't have diabetic coma. So, you know, right. I see Suboxone in the same light as that if a patient's on it and they're doing well, it can be maintained. People can do well and they can, and to that, me, that patient is sober, um, you know, and they're in recovery. 
Um, if they want to taper down, absolutely, let's go for it. But if your body's saying, I can't do this, and you're living a good life on Suboxone, then I look at you with the same respect as somebody who is, you know, tapered off completely. You know, it's not a one size fits all treatment. Sure. So, yeah. Okay. Yeah, I, I, I personally think that it, it certainly has its place. Um, I've pivoted on this. I used to be against it completely. I thought it was, you know, modern day and abuse. Like why, you know, this is not good. And then I had a counselor, a therapist that I respect was on the podcast early on. And he kind of laid out this, this argument of, uh, like, look, I can get somebody on Suboxone whose life can stop falling down around at their feet. They can become a functioning member of society. They can do those things that grow and enhance a natural self-esteem. They can become a better person. And they're not going to have that chance at all right? if they're using. And not for nothing, you know, this may keep them from ODing and dying. Right, exactly. So, Especially uh, with the prevalence of fentanyl and everything. Everything. So I, I, I mean, so I've had a patient, you know, who has passed away and, you know, what happened, you know, really was that there was a big push to get that patient off Suboxone, you know, from the family, from, you know, referral sources, from even the hospitals, you know, and so it's like, okay, we can taper people down. That's not difficult to do, but the question is, are they going to maintain that sobriety? So, you know, patient discharges, the patient goes to uh, you know, a program and, you know, the patient's told they have to be off Suboxone in order to be in a program of that sort. And so, you know, the patient is, you know, there for a little bit and then the patient, you know, quits the program because they want to be on Suboxone because they're, they're not feeling good. And we know why, you know, physically, you know, and so at that point they go back and look for something that's going to satiate that craving. And that sometimes isn't Suboxone. Unfortunately, it's fentanyl, it's heroin, it's, you know, pain pill. And, you know, the problem is when you've kind of been off or, you go back to using what you've been using, you can overdose very easily. And sure. so, you know, in this case, this patient, you know, uh, ultimately expired as a young patient, you know, and so, you know, these are the things that, you know, where people are hardline about, you know, that I, I'm confident that if that patient was on Suboxone still, they, they probably would still be here today, you know, but that's one of those decisions that's, you know, pushed through, you know, and it's not necessarily a physician level decision always. It's a, you know, patient, uh, family, and institutional level decision, you know, so I think that we have to get past this, you know, you have to get off mentality to be sober. I mean, if you can, absolutely, we, we will try to take every patient off Suboxone if we can, but at the same time, you wouldn't have someone who's diabetic or who has high blood pressure and you try to take them off their insulin or their blood pressure pill and their blood pressure spikes or their blood sugar rises. And you say, well, just keep, just stay off of it. Uh, that would be irresponsible medicine. Right. So I don't understand why, you know, I think we have taken moralism and tried to say, well, this is a willpower or a good and evil thing. And that's not really what this is about. You know, um, we all have, you know, illnesses and things. And because we haven't understood the, you know, neurobiology of uh, what causes this, we have made it into a good and evil or moralistic thing. And it's definitely not that. And so I think that that's where we have to give each other grace and say, you know, you, your way of going through this is your way of going through this, you know, you're sober, but if you're able to take care of your family, work your job, take care of your kids, then you deserve as much respect as the next person. Absolutely. Look, I want to hit you with a controversial topic, put you on the spot. Okay. Uh, one of the main opiates that I abused, the opiate that I abused the most was Dilaudid mm -hmm. and Dilaudid people are Dilaudid people. And, uh, 
I zero times saw somebody overdose on Dilaudid. When it became more difficult to get Dilaudid, people did more heroin, and those people die all the time. Where are you on decriminalizing drugs? And, uh, yeah, where, are you, where would you stand on that? You know, so decriminalization of drugs, I think I'm, I'm for it. You know, I think the big thing is that we need to, you know, help patients rather than, you know, put them in jail. Um, even sometimes I feel like, you know, I've worked with the criminal justice system. I know some of the judges here in town, um, you know, uh, it, it's difficult uh, to send someone to jail and just say this is going to fix the problem. You know, we have to get to the root of the issue, which is that there's a neurobiological issue and this patient needs the adequate treatment, you know, and a lot of the behaviors that are driven from that addiction, you know, stealing, you know, things like that are, are coming from this. And so if we fix that problem, we're going to have the issue go away. So, you know, a lot of times I've had patients who even have gone to jail and then when they got back out, they started using again, you know, or they're using in jail because they're able to get the substance still, you know, through whatever means that they may use. So uh, I think decriminalization of it is, is a big thing. You know, more people in jail in America than there are anywhere in the world. Uh, including China, who has four times the population that we do, uh, you know, we have to think about, you know, using our resources better uh, to help these people and help them get back to being functioning members of our society. Nancy Reagan just said, just say no. Yeah. I yeah. don't think that worked out. <laughs> yeah. I don't think so. I mean, I appreciate, you know, there's primary prevention, you know, trying to keep people off of it. So obviously, you know, I'm not advocating that people should use drugs. But, you know, after that, you have to think about different levels, secondary and tertiary levels of prevention that are out there to help, you know, at-risk populations and to help people who are already using to reduce their harm. And so I think when you look at it like that and say, okay, well, some people aren't going to be primary prevention. Some people are tertiary, you know, where we're thinking about, you know, needle exchange programs and we're thinking about, you know, harm reduction strategies here. You know, criminalizing this is just creating that cycle of of problems, you know, if we can get people, you know, back to work and not having felonies and misdemeanors on their records and being able to continue to support their, their families, we're not putting, uh, these people still have families that have to be supported and we're putting that back on the state, you know, and back on other people. So, you know, if we can get that person to be self-sufficient again, you know, I think that that's going to be better for all of us. Absolutely. And, and beautiful. I, I want to circle back my, uh, something is just screaming in my head. I, I want to circle back to that initial question about insurance and how um, the, the insurance is not always going to pay. So what 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 we've learned through the podcast is uh, through uh, Brad Garraway with Clear Path Interventions is uh, we need data. We need data to take to the insurance companies and say, look, it is cheaper for you to pay for treatment now than it is to deal with the consequences that that are going to happen as a result of this person not getting the help that they need. What what are some of the data points? What are the what are some of the things that you think that we could do as a as a corporation as a organization to to hurt a hurry up that process and b fight for fight the insurance companies. So is there is there something that comes to mind with you when when I talk about that 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 would be, okay, this is a beautiful data point to go. This is a beautiful data point to give to an insurance company to say, look, here it is in black and white. If you bite the bullet and pay for long-term treatment now, the, the, the possibility of it being less expensive in the future is, is very great. I think it's, the data is definitely out there. And I think that, you know, back to my point of there being different routes for different patients, you know, 
not everybody needs an inpatient treatment program. You know, a lot of people I think can benefit from even doing outpatient, you know, sure. and then coupling that with an intensive outpatient program or, you know, staying on MAT and that's all going to be cheaper than, you know, going the route of, you know, hospital uh, you know, admissions or, you know, being in the ICU right. after an overdose, uh, you know? So, I mean, for us, we, we focused on both ends of the pond. I've done inpatient and I've done outpatient, you know, outpatient's a lot cheaper, uh, you know, the cost of outpatient treatment, I think we calculated for our clinic would be almost 12 years of outpatient treatment for like one month of inpatient. So, right. I mean, wow. Pretty, that's crazy. Know, it's a pretty big difference. So, you know, you're looking at, you know, massive differences in, you know, so certain people who have good family support, uh, who are adequately motivated, um, you know, and have the financial wherewithal, outpatient may work for them, you know, if it's not, you know, dual diagnosis or there's not multi-substances that can work. You know, sometimes people who have less family support, less, you know, um, desire uh, in the moment, uh, inpatient is great because it's a good launching pad, you know, into something more, you know, in a recovery and, you know, still it's going to reduce costs. So, I think it's making public officials and making the public aware of what options exist. You know, also there's one of my favorite websites is called streetrx.com. And what I like about that is it shows the cost of what drugs cost on the street, because, you know, people will sometimes say, Oh, I can't afford recovery, but you know, for outpatient treatment in particular, the cost of the drugs themselves is going to be more than what it would cost to start pursuing uh, treatment. So, you know, for a milligram is usually a dollar on the street. So, you know, the dollar per milligram rule is the one that I kind of use. There are some exceptions there, but, you know, a 10 milligram pill of hydrocodone is usually going to be about $10, five to $10, depending on, you know, 50 cents to a dollar, a dollar makes the math easy. So that's generally what we see. And so, you know, if you're buying six, seven pills a day, the math becomes 60, $70 a day, you know, times every day. So you have a mortgage payment pretty fast, right? Uh, which is, you know, a lot cheaper than even outpatient. So, you know, I think being aware of that, you know, uh, what's the cost of this, or if you're stealing stuff and you, you know, get hit with a misdemeanor or a felony, you know, the legal costs of that, the cost of not being able to go back into the workforce after this follows you. So these are things that, you know, people need to think about that are, are costs that are not considered. Uh, so, you know, definitely I've had patients, one lady I treated told me she'd saved $25,000 over a span of about six months. I believe so it. Pretty cool to see, you know, so I think just looking at it like that is, can be helpful, you know, and we're happy to, we do that with our patients a lot, just kind of showing them how they're going to actually get ahead. It's pretty great. It's pretty great. Uh, well, I did hear you mention about imaging and y'all need to get the price of those MRIs down. Yeah. How are we going to do that? That's astronomical. Absolutely. So I'm big thing is I think transparency in medicine, transparency in costs, you know, uh, there's an article I read. I wish I could remember the name of who wrote it, but basically talked about kind of the dumb bird phenomenon of medicine. And so the idea is that like birds fly everywhere and they land wherever they land. And so, you know, if you think about gas stations, certain gas stations, it may be $4 a gallon and people fill up there. And there are certain gas stations that are two fifty, and people fill up there. And, you know, it's, it's a convenience. And sometimes that's a factor. And also even worse than the gas station world, there's a lack of knowledge in terms of cost, you know? And so an MRI may cost $800 here. It may be three fifty here. And so, you know, the customer needs to be able to have more uh, transparency in the pricing that exists there and more options to say, well, you know, maybe better for me to pay cash than to pay, you know, my deductible, which may be a greater amount, you know. And so I think asking the right questions and then creating greater transparency and pricing in medicine is key. Um, I think especially as we see premiums and deductibles rise, uh, I think there'll be more of a market for, you know, cash pay 
uh, and there are businesses out there that are doing that and meeting that need. I completely agree. The yeah. transparency is is huge, and knowing what options and and what resources are available to you is is super important. Yeah. Well, you know, the, to to kind of like clarify that the dumb bird comment is that the hospitals are waiting and hoping that some birds will land in their lot. And so when those birds land there, they're able to take advantage of them. And so, you know, the, the customer being the bird is unable to be uh, notified or know that this is an expensive lawn. You're not, you're landing in an expensive yard. It's going to cost you more money than landing in a yard where, you know, it's more reasonable. You know, the birds don't know that. And they're having to pay to land. In yeah. They don't lawn. even know they have the option to shop it. So right, to speak. Right. 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 So that's what, what we mean by that. And so, you know, that's how healthcare has existed, especially in certain markets, you know, especially here in, in Dallas, Fort Worth, you see that a lot, uh, you know, and so there are options, you know, getting imaging done at a hospital is going to be more costly than doing it at an outpatient center, you know, so, you know, sometimes patients want to go to the big hospitals and I'm, I try to discourage that because I say, you know, it's going to be more difficult a lot of times for us to even get the imaging back. And also it's going to cost more probably for you, depending on the plan. So you know, just things that people can be aware of and know. Yeah, I, I got to say, um, what what would you, all right, so let me just tell you a personal situation. And and Peter has, uh, I believe, sent my mom a referral to, to come and talk to you. But my mom deals with serious pain uh, mm-hmm. in her back. And she is anti-opiate uh, medications, period. So mm-hmm. what what do you tell to a, 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 what do you tell a patient? What kind of hope do you give a patient that says, I am living in pain every day, but I do not want to take opiate medications. Do I have options? What do you tell them? Absolutely. I mean, I, I love patients like that. I mean, I, I'm absolutely, you know, willing to bring out the full, you know, armamentarium that we have in pain. You know, I think that it's a really exciting time for me uh, professionally because there's so many options that have been coming out. You know, there's neurostimulation, there's regenerative medicine, there's, you know, all sorts of procedures. I went to a conference not too long ago and I was at a, a lab where we were looking at different procedures. They're teaching physicians how to do. And I was like, wow, there's almost 50% of the things in the room here. I didn't even learn in fellowship. They're just right. like new things that are coming out. So, you know, patients sometimes come in and say, I've tried an injection and I kind of laugh and say, well, I've got 45, t- uh, you know, templates of injections that I can do. So, you know, one injection is exactly that. It's one injection. It's no different than trying one pill and saying, well, you know, medicine didn't work for me. And it's like, right. well, that's just one pill. So, you know, there's a lot of good things that we can offer her and any other patient like that. You know, regenerative medicine is a really cool thing. You can take cells, you know, and help regenerate cells that have been lost. Um, there's neurostimulation where we're changing the electrical patterns that cause pain in the body. Uh, there's even some devices where we're going and fixing the mechanical problems that are in the body. And then if we can't do it on the pain side, guys like, you know, Dr. Derman are able to do that, uh, you know, well, and do it in a minimally invasive way. So, you know, I think we have a great uh, approach. I think guys like him and guys like me, you know, we focus on uh, getting to the source, figuring out what's what's wrong with the patient. And then when we can fix that issue, typically the need for opiates disappears, you know. So. And that's beautiful. That's beautiful. That is beautiful. A life without a, a reliance on opiate medications is just, uh, I mean, Peter was, Dr. Derman was posting about that the other day that he, you know, performed surgery on this young lady who, uh, you know, she was, she, her daughter was, uh, in cheer and um, she was completely unable to, to do anything. And Peter went in with minimally invasive surgery and, you know, she was able to get off those opiate medications and she sent Dr. Derman a, a letter saying, you know, you've basically restored my life. And it's, it's beautiful to me that um, 
doctors are not just all like completely enmeshed with opiate medications now. And, and that's, you know, I know very little about the medical side of things, but you know, it certainly seemed as though for us, for a time, um, you know, the go-to solution was opiate medications and, you know, seeing, being in recovery and seeing the, the downside of that and the, the opposite Well, if side you believe everything you've, we've heard about Purdue, I mean, they legit told people yeah, yeah. it's not addictive. Yeah. If they act like they are addicted, that means you're not prescribing enough. I right. mean, it's the, if you're a drug addict, this is as good as it gets, man. Right, right. I, that begs the question. Have you seen, what's the movie um, with, what was it, Michael Keaton? Dope or, Sick. Dope Sick. Have you seen Dope Sick? I haven't seen Dope Sick, but I have seen Crime of the Century on HBO, which talks a lot about what you're talking about with Purdue. You know, it's a documentary, and they really talk about, you know, there's a guy on there, I remember, I think he said he was taking 22 oxycodone twice a day. God. You know, he said, I have to really shoot him up. And, you know, there was physicians who were getting rich off this, and then, you know, the government's done very little to stop this. I think there was a, you know, one of the senators um, out of the, the in Connecticut, I forget his name, I think it might have been Senator Dodd. Uh, you know, was, you know, basically saying that, you know, this is my constituent Purdue is in my, you know, backyard, we've got to protect Purdue. And so, you know, the the Congress, you know, voted, uh, the Senate, I should say, voted 100 to zero, you know, to protect Purdue, you know, right. this was obviously as bipartisan as it gets. And then it went to the president. And, you know, uh, I think it was President Obama at the time, he, he signed off on it. And so it's like, there was no resistance administration changes, President Trump comes in, same story. So, you know, this is something if we look at the number of opiate deaths going back to the, you know, the first President Bush, it's gone up regardless of administration, you know, and so it's something that our government has failed us on, you know, on both sides of the aisle, uh, you know, in terms of getting it this fixed. Yeah, if, Senator Dodd, Senator Dodd was then on payroll for Purdue Pharma and was making eight times what he was you, making with the government. If it's true, like the little card that you get when you're in the hospital, like how bad is my pain? And it goes from smiley face to frowny face. Right. Apparently that was Purdue made those. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. The, yeah, yeah. Uh, the graphs they submitted to the FDA Awful. were skewed yeah. in such a way as to. Completely and, misleading. Yeah, they were completely misleading, you know, that they were made by these statisticians and they were like, look, this was a knowing falsehood. Right. Uh, the way that y'all manipulated these graphs to show, uh, I guess, pain mitigation versus dosage. I know we're we're close to running out of time. I've got one question for you. You mentioned about people that are get hooked on opiates as a result of uh, you know, a treatment for something like some kind of compound fracture or car wreck. Or car wreck. Is there an observable difference from a uh, uh, physician's position between the man or woman who develops a dependency later in life? because of a, uh, a, a, a injury or illness that was no fault of their own. And then the man or woman who has had uh, chronic substance abuse problems, you know, from their say teenage years forward. There's definitely a difference. You know, I think people who are introduced to opiates later in life are less likely, it seems to develop those, you know, substance use disorder problems. So, you know, if you're using them younger and recreationally, that can be a problem because you're rewiring, you know, the neurotransmitters earlier in life. Um, I'm a big believer, and this is kind of more anecdotal than scientific, in kind of a pain bucket. And so, you know, opiates, I'm not opposed to writing opiates. I do write them, but I think it's about writing them appropriately and for the appropriate period of time. And so, you know, if someone breaks a, a limb, 
you know, obviously I think that opiates are a appropriate medication to, to give the patient, but it needs to be for a, a fixed period of time, a fixed amount under close supervision, you know, so some good work has been done with this in terms of, you know, pharmacies working with shorter prescriptions, you know, more frequent visits, you know, to kind of reassess uh, some of this is, you know, the way the system works where, you know, people want these 30 day scripts and it's like, just so they don't have to come back in so frequently, but in some cases it is good to be seen more frequently so we can have a better, you know, um, handle on this and, you know, work to taper more aggressively and more quickly, you know, so even for substance use disorder patients, sometimes the most common question I get is, well, you know, now that I'm off hydrocodone or oxycodone, I'm going to have gallbladder surgery or some surgery. And, you know, can I have uh, pain pills again or opiates, I should say. And uh, I see the answer is yes. You know, we can give you oxycodone again, or we can put you on this, but it needs to be under close supervision. You know, I want to know what we are giving. Sometimes I'll be the one to prescribe it. And then we're going to get you back on Suboxone or we're going to get you tapered back off of this, you know, and we're going to do this under the supervision of you. And then even ideally a family member or friend who's giving you the pills so that we make sure that this doesn't get back out of control, you know, so it's very well, you know, coordinated and, you know, we're, we're working on that. So I think you can see a difference in those populations. It's interesting to me how the, the, the behavior and the physical kind of merge together at mm -hmm. some point. I mean, uh, well, I better not tell that story. That one, <laughs> that one might get me in trouble, but you know, people can have, I mean, if I'm in the hospital bed and I've broken my femur, I don't want to hear about where are you emotionally right now? Right, right, right. <laughs> I want to hear about that morphine pump. Right. And, yeah. and how, you know, if you have a legitimate need for a narcotic and you're in recovery, it oftentimes is not the end of the world, provided you have the right frame of mind beforehand. Right. It's yeah. interesting. Yeah, you got to be, you, you got to be, well, dare I say, spiritually fit, and you can do and go right. anywhere. So, well, we don't want to take up any more of your time. We are, Doctor Thompson, thank you, unbelievably, so much, thank you, grateful for you joining us and taking the time um, to to uh, share with us. And um, we wish nothing but the best for you. Likewise, and thank you. I appreciate what you guys are doing and spreading awareness. And this is great work. This is God's work. So, I really appreciate you guys doing this. Thank, thank you. you, thank, thank you, you, sir. Thank you.